Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 4, and verses 13 through 25. Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. Well, let's give careful attention now to God's Holy Word, beginning in chapter 4, verse 13 of Romans. This is the Word of God. For the promise that He would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did who contrary to hope, here speaking of Abraham, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in Him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Well, this evening we'll be taking up verse 13 from the passage that we just read. And so, seeking the Lord's help and guidance, let's turn our attention to verse 13 of Romans chapter 4. Speaking of Abraham, it says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now in our morning sermon series on Paul's epistle to the Romans, we spent numerous weeks considering this uh, section in chapter 4. We've been considering the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we're sinners that we've disqualified ourselves from eternal fellowship with God in heaven by our sin, 
that the law of God is not a ladder by which we climb our way into favor with God, but rather it cuts off all hope of salvation or of eternal life because the wages of our sin is death. And so like Abraham, the only way we can have righteousness with God, the only way that we can be right in the sight of a holy God and be acceptable to Him and spend eternity with Him and live in the blessedness of His favor here and now is by believing in Christ. By confessing our sins and putting our trust exclusively and entirely in the righteousness that Jesus Christ performed in His obedience to God unto death on the cross, taking away our sins. And His resurrection, which confirmed His perfect obedience, His perfect righteousness, and that God had accepted that sacrifice on behalf of every believer. Paul is emphasizing this, and we've emphasized this time and time again, and we'll emphasize it again this evening, that apart from believing in what Christ performed on our behalf, apart from renouncing our own righteousness and receiving His perfect righteousness in the sight of God, we have no hope. And Abraham's a perfect example. Abraham believed the promise of God, even when it seemed hopeless. It was hopeless in himself, but he found hope in God, God's faithfulness, uh, God's word of promise. He, He clung to it. And he embraced it. And he's in heaven even now as we speak, rejoicing in the presence of his Savior. And so it is for all who put their trust in Christ. Now, in the midst of what Paul is saying here, he says something striking in verse 13. And that's why we've sort of spun off from the morning sermon series in Romans. And we're going to spend a number of Sabbath evenings considering this remarkable statement that Paul makes in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that Abraham would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. So he's saying Abraham and all who like Abraham believe God's promise represent Abraham's seed. God's believing people throughout the ages. And he's saying that God's believing people throughout the ages by believing in Christ, have become with Abraham in Christ the heir of the world. It's a very striking statement. You wouldn't expect to see something like that. In fact, many people just gloss over it. And and of course, we can sympathize with that because as we said, the main point of the passage is justification by faith alone. But we can't gloss it over because... It's part of the Word of God, and it's meant to stimulate our thought. It's meant to drive us to this fundamental teaching, uh, not fundamental, but this important teaching that we find from Genesis to Revelation, that in fact, in Christ, God's people become the heir of the world. In fact, God made a promise to Abraham And Paul describes the promise that God made to Abraham as such that Abraham and his offspring would be heir of the world. So we need to consider this. What does it mean? Uh, We we looked at it to some extent in one of our sermons recently, but we're going to sink our teeth into this, not only in terms of this particular verse, but tonight we're going to give an overview of the, the 
overall teaching that Paul is bringing here to us and where, you know, the, the biblical basis for it in general terms. And uh, then next time, with God's help, we're going to consider how this theme presents itself in the book of Genesis. We'll consider it also from the book of Psalms, the book of Isaiah, and we'll consider it in the Gospels and throughout the rest of the New Testament. Uh, so stay tuned, buckle up. This is going to be a thorough series on this, this point here, that, that, that uh, God's people would be heir of the world. What is this saying? Well, Paul tells us that it's a promise. The promise that Abraham and his seed would be the heir of the world. Now, when we speak of the promise here, we're referring back to God's promises in his covenant relationship with Abraham in the book of Genesis. And when God makes a promise, in a, in a case like this, we're dealing with predictive prophecy. God is saying, this is going to happen. God is promising infallibly, it cannot help but come to pass. Infallibly, God is uh, declaring this predictive prophecy that it shall come to pass. And in this case, we're dealing with uh, predictive prophecy that that centers around the blessing of the gospel. Uh, Abraham was uh, approached by God on many occasions. And we're going to look at some of the ways in which this is fulfilled. But Abraham's very name, when God gave him the name Abraham, represents the idea that he is the father of many nations. God promised him that in his seed, all nations of the earth, all families, all nations of the earth would be blessed. God said that his offspring, whom Paul here defines as those who embrace justification by faith alone, he's the father of of God's believing people, it says that his offspring would be more numerous than the stars of the heavens or the sand on the seashore. Time and time again, the Lord brings promises to Abraham, even saying that entire nations and kings would come from him. And Paul's telling us here that the descendants and the nations and the global seed, the global offspring, is a reference to God's believing people. It's defined by those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not dealing here with prophecies about political or national Israel. We're not dealing, at least in this particular passage, with a promise that is unique to the Jews, some future conversion, although Romans 11 speaks of that. But here, what we're seeing is that God made an infallible, predictive prophecy of gospel blessing to Abraham that he would have an innumerable offspring, all nations of the earth, nations, kings, that the the gospel would bear fruit massively, predominantly among the nations. And it's a promise that was made to Abraham and his seed. Verse 13, notice he says, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. But, and there's what we call an ellipsis here, he doesn't state everything all over again, he leaves it out, but it's implied that Uh, but it was to Abraham and his seed through the righteousness of faith. So the promise is to Abraham and to his seed. Uh, Well, what does that mean? Let's look elsewhere in Paul's writings. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. 
Now to Abraham and his seed, capital S, in our pew Bible here, you can see. Capital S, it's a reference to Christ. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ? Now you say, does that mean it's only Christ? What does it mean? No, it doesn't mean only Christ, but it means Christ and only those in Him. Because if you look at further along in the chapter, verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So again, the promise to Abraham and his seed is a promise to Christ and his people. So it's a promise that would come to greatest fruition in the New Testament church. That's how Paul interprets it consistently throughout his epistles. Now we're told that the promise that Abraham and his seed would be the heir of the world The Greek word here is cosmos, world. Uh, It's the the word that's typically used to speak of the world. And so you say, well, what is this speaking of here? In what sense do God's believing people in Christ inherit the world? Is this a reference to the physical creation? Now, I'm retracing some of my steps from a previous sermon, but just to cover our basis here. Is this speaking of the physical creation? Uh, God's people inherit the earth and the new heavens and the new earth, and and there's a sort of logical chain of reasoning that some people try to use here and say, well, that's what it's referring to. Uh, In fact, in Romans 1 verse 20, this word world is used in reference to the creation of the world, the physical universe. In chapter 5 verses 12 and 13, uh, we're told that through one man, namely Adam, Sin entered the world, the physical creation. So it's not impossible that this word world here could be a reference to the physical universe. But the problem is, in the context, there's no indication of that whatsoever. If you look at Romans chapter 4, Paul is not drawing to our attention God's promise of land to Abraham, right? Because you could say, well, God promised the land of Canaan, And that's a type and shadow of all nations in the New Testament and eventually of the heavenly Canaan and the world to come. And so, but Paul's not piggybacking on any of those land promises to Abraham. The promise that he's speaking of here is that the seed would would be all nations, that he would be a father of many nations. In other words, it's not real estate, it's people. People groups, families of the earth, nations of the earth, so shall your descendants be. So Abraham inheriting the world is not by way of Abraham inheriting Canaan as a type and shadow of heaven or of the new heavens, the new earth. We're going to look at some of the possible theories there. But, but in context, Abraham inheriting the world is Abraham becoming a father of all nations of the world through the gospel. That's the context. So we have to be careful. People come to the Bible with a preconceived notion 
of what it should say and what it means, and they have their system, and, and they're you know, adjusting and readjusting, but we can't do that. Context is king. Uh, as one person once said, there are three rules of interpreting the Bible. Context, context, and context. That's probably a little over the line. But, but the point is, there's nothing in the context that says anything about the new heavens and the new earth. It's about people. It's about nations. Now, you could say, well, then the word world can sometimes mean the human race, past, present, and future. So, for instance, chapter 3, verse 6, it says, for then how will God judge the world? God's going to judge the world, all mankind, the human race, past, present, and future. The word sometimes means that. Same chapter, chapter 3, verse 19 It says at the judgment that all the world may become guilty before God. Again, uh, at the very least a large, I mean, if we're thinking of the unconverted at the day of judgment, but basically he's saying by nature, all of us in ourselves would stand guilty. The human race, past, present, and future. Well, the word world could also mean sinful society. And you see this in Romans 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he's saying don't be conformed to the sinful practices of this sinful society in which you live in this wicked world. Well, I don't think we're saying that Abraham is going to inherit the world in the sense of sinful society. Uh, It doesn't seem that he's going to inherit the entire human race, past, present, and future. So these other options don't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, The the, the idea that it's a reference to the physical creation is, is shoddy at best. But you see, the most consistent interpretation here is, once again, that the word world refers to the nations of the world. Paul uses it in that way in Romans 1 verse 8. Romans 1 verse 8, But I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. In other words, throughout the nations of the world, throughout the various regions and people groups in the world. Chapter 10 verse 18, similar use here. Paul says, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Speaking of the the call of the gospel, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So he's talking about the, the word of God going out to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the world, to the nations of the world. But perhaps the clincher in terms of really establishing in terms of the way Paul speaks the language he uses, and, and looking for something of a parallel passage to help us interpret this, we go to Romans 11, verse 12 and verse 15. Here Paul is dealing with the fact that most of the Jews had rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and been cut off of God's covenant people, the olive tree, the visible church. They'd been cut off because of their unbelief. There was only a small remnant of believing Jews And he's saying, is that going to continue perpetually? Uh, Have the Jews stumbled that they might fall so that there will never be a revival and a 
massive conversion of the Jews? He says, no, certainly not. And he goes on to, to describe how the salvation of the Gentiles eventually serves to regather and regraft the Jews and then to bring life to the Gentile world in God's providential plan. So much more could be said. I'm not trying to um, get too much into the weeds here. But Romans 11, verse 12, speaking of the Jews, now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So you can see here there's a parallelism in Paul's statement in Romans 11, verse 12. If their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles. So the words fall and failure go together. The words riches and riches go together. That's an obvious one. And the words world and Gentiles or nations go together. And he's saying if the unbelief of the Jews brought the gospel to the nations of the world, in other words, riches for the world, how much more their fullness. So if if the unbelief of the Jews brought in massive loads of Gentiles, how much more the massive conversion of the Jews will bring even greater spiritual riches to the nations of the world. And then he says, verse 15, for if they're being cast away, meaning the Jews, is the reconciling of the world. Again, he's talking not about physical real estate, not about every human being, past, present, future, not about sinful society. He's talking about the Gentile nations of the world. This is how Paul uses this type of language. For if the Jews being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance but life from the dead? In other words, when there is a massive conversion among the Jews, That's going to be a spiritual resurrection, a shot in the arm, a massive awakening among the nations, spiritually. And that phrase, life from the dead, uh, as I said, this really brings the clincher because that's the whole point at the end of Romans 4, is that Abraham, in believing that God would make him the father of many nations and would bless all nations and families through him and through the gospel... Abraham believing that when he and his wife were as good as dead and barren and unable to have children, for him to believe that at that point is to believe in the God who gives life to the dead. And it's the same idea here. Paul is saying in some sense, even in Paul's day, we see the church far more uh, having advanced far more globally than even in Paul's day, but to some extent for us, to look at the church today, this tiny minuscule percentage of the inhabitants of the earth, uh, I mean, what percentage of people in the world's population today are truly converted or have a profession in any sense of the true religion? It is tiny. For us to look at that and see the church in some sense as a valley of dry bones compared to the rest of the world and to believe that God would raise up a massive conversion of the Jews who are spiritually as good as dead for the most part and would bring life from the dead for the Gentile. This is a great act of faith in a great God of faithfulness. 
But, but you see the language here. Life from the dead. In the same sense that God brought life from the dead to produce Isaac, He will bring Isaac's and Jacob's offspring spiritually among the nations. Life from the dead. Awakening. Revival. Massive. Conversion. That's what Paul is talking about. And it's that language that helps inform us in our context back in Romans chapter 4. The world is the nations of the world and we're dealing here similarly with life from the dead. Now, what does it mean to inherit the world? The promise that Abraham and his seed would be the heir of the world. Well, to inherit is to gain possession of. God's people inherited the land of Canaan. Uh, It means to inhabit, to possess, to rule, to reign. Um, And so what this is saying is that the, the, the kingdom of God, the seed of Abraham, will inherit, will take possession of the nations of the world. The nation and kingdom that will not serve God's kingdom will be utterly destroyed, as Isaiah prophesies. And so the church, Christ being the head, will inherit the nations in that sense. And we see this in the Psalms. Again, we're just skimming the surface on some of these things. We'll go into greater detail with the theology of the Psalms on this point. But Psalm 2, verse 8, which speaks of Abraham's seed, Christ Himself, the Messiah, the Christ, the nations are plotting against Him, so on and so forth. Here the Lord says to him, Psalm 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Isn't that interesting? It's a them, not an it. See, the inheritance of the world, the inheritance of the nations and of the ends of the earth is not speaking merely of real estate, it's people. You shall break them with a rod of iron. In other words, you're going to conquer them, the nations, the ends of the earth, the people inhabiting those nations of the world. You're going to conquer them. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And and so on and so forth. So Christ inherits the nations of the world as the seed of Abraham and God's people in Him participate in that global advance of the Gospel. Also, look at Psalm 47. Psalm 47. This is a fascinating psalm. And if you start to, you know, whenever you read your Bible, ask questions about why is it saying this and what's the logical connection? It's a very interesting psalm. Verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. So that's all the peoples of the world. That's the nations. Okay, why are the Gentile nations supposed to be clapping? Why are they supposed to be thrilled here and rejoicing? Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great King over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. Well, this doesn't make sense at first, right? If you, if you think in a certain way, it raises questions. Why would all you peoples, why would all the peoples of the earth be celebrating and praising God that He's going to subdue them underneath His covenant people? 
Again, verse 1, all you peoples shout to God with a voice of triumph. So the peoples are triumphing and they're celebrating. But verse 3 says that the peoples are going to be subdued under us, meaning the people of God. So the nations of the world, the peoples of the earth are going to be defeated, but for them it's a triumph. They're supposed to shout exultingly and triumph. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. You can see what this is saying is that the nations of the earth through the gospel will be brought under the feet of Jesus Christ. And in in one sense, they're being defeated. But they're going to rejoice at having been conquered, just as you, dear believer. We're a rebel against God, and God converted you by the power of His Holy Spirit. And Jesus saved you and conquered you to Himself, and you rejoice at having been conquered. That's what's happening here. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob whom he loves. So that's God's covenant people rejoicing in it. Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Now some interpreters take this as the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the imagery here is of the Ark of the Covenant leading God's people into battle. God has gone up with a shout. Uh, But God the Son... The God-man went up, as it were, with a shout, went up and ascended into heaven and is ruling and reigning. And you see that emphasis back in verse 2, great king over all the earth. And here we see Christ taking that throne, that kingdom over all the earth. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. You see, it's connecting it. God going up with a shout is the great king over all the earth, taking his place at God's right hand. Our God is king of all the earth. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together the people of the God of Abraham. That's an amazing statement right there. So God is king of all the earth by way of Jesus going up in the ascension, taking his place at God's right hand. He rules over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. And the princes of the people have gathered together the people of the God of Abraham. In other words, he's the father of many nations. And so there's this massive gathering before the Lord of All of Abraham's offspring, the princes of the people, the nations, the peoples, the Jews, the Gentiles, gathering before the Lord, who is the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. Because, of course, at this point you say, well, that's never going to happen. The nations of the world are not going to let Jesus in, right? He's trying to conquer the nations, and he's riding on his white horse, but they're going to put up their shields and their defenses and the gates of hell are going to repel him and prevail against him. And there's no way the gospel could bring the nations and princes of the world under the feet of God himself in Christ as the God of Abraham. Ah, but you see, God owns their shields. He has the code to deactivate their, uh, their force fields, if you will. The shields of the earth belong to God. God is sovereign even over the defenses 
of the world. God is sovereign. This is why in Matthew 16, Jesus says, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell, the defense that the world has put up to keep the gospel from bringing all nations under the feet of Christ, those defensive shields and gates will not prevail against the onslaught, the offensive of Jesus Christ on His white horse. The shields of the earth belong to God. Jesus Christ owns the shields and He deactivates them at will. He is greatly exalted. Exalted as head over all things for the church. So you can see this imagery of inheritance as not merely God's people inheriting Canaan, but through the gospel, God's people inheriting all nations as all nations are outwardly brought to profess the name of Christ. And all enemies are brought under His feet. Uh, you, you see something of this as well in Psalm 82, verse 8. This type of language. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Isn't that interesting? God owns all nations. He created all nations. As as we heard uh, in our psalm meditation, God is the proprietor and owner of all things by nature as creator. But here it's saying that God in some sense will inherit the nations. See, this is a covenantal transaction. This is referring to God in the person of Christ who is the Son of God asking and all nations become His inheritance. And therefore, the seed of Abraham in Christ inherits all nations through the power of the gospel. Uh, We we could look at Revelation 19, which speaks of Christ on the white horse against his enemies, riding forth. Uh, In fact, let's look at that. Revelation 19.11. Now I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So you see Christ by his word, by the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, defeating his enemies. And you can see in the remainder of the chapter, all of these usual suspects in the book of Revelation, verse 19, the beast, the kings of the earth, the armies, they gathered against him to make war. Uh, The beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. They're cast in the lake of fire. And notice verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him. 
who sat on the horse. Uh, This is the word of God. By the breath of his mouth, the spirit of his mouth, he will slay the wicked. Isaiah 11. So this is the power of the gospel. And this is, as we, we might say, the great commission. There's an inheritance that God's people receive in Christ as the gospel goes forward. Uh, if you had time, we, we may save this for another time. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and verses 21 and 22 makes a similar point about the saints inheriting and possessing this worldwide kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we were to sum it all up, we would say that according to this verse and according to what we've looked at, all nations will join together in a corporate profession of true religion prior to Christ's return. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. There's more evidence for this teaching of Scripture than numerous other doctrinal distinctives that we, that we uh, throw around as Reformed people. As we're going to see, this is a consistent teaching from Genesis to Revelation that all nations will join together in a corporate profession of true religion prior to Christ's return. Now, having said, having, having articulated that summary of the doctrine, I recognize that this is countercultural among American Christians today. For generations, Christians have been taught that things are getting worse and worse, that uh, because Western society is crumbling, though they wouldn't put it that way, but that's really what they're observing. They see all these signs that Western society and civilization is crumbling, and therefore they believe that, it's, that we're coming down to the end of the world, and therefore things are getting worse and worse. And so they go throughout the Bible, and all the pessimistic passages, and all the, uh, all the verses that seem to lend credence to the idea that really throughout history in the New Testament period, things are going to get worse and worse and worse until it's whittled down to about three people and then Jesus is going to return. Or that there's going to be a secret rapture and so on and so forth. All of these kinds of ideas, whether they're in the Reformed world or in dispensational teaching, it's, it's the doom and gloom message that dominates our pulpits too often. Uh, especially, again, as we see the decline of our society in rebellion against Christ, God is judging our society, God is judging the Western world. We're, we're certainly not looking at our society and saying, wow, we're on the cusp of a national covenanted reformation or something like that. Uh, may it be, but, but there's no sign of that. Things do look like they're getting worse in our country, in our society, because of our sin. But biblically speaking, we're going to see, as we've already seen from some of these verses, that the biblical perspective on world history is far different from the the doom and gloom naysayers who want to tell us that things are just getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and that that's a sign that Jesus is about to return. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth. And let me just, in in addressing some of the common misconceptions, pivot here to Matthew 24 just to illustrate this. Some of the the worst, most glaring misinterpretations of the Bible that I think I've I've ever run across. Matthew 24, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus says that... 
Not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. In other words, the temple at that time in the first century would be destroyed. Jesus predicts that. His disciples, if you look at the parallel gospel accounts, they're troubled by that. They're, they're looking at these beautiful stones and monuments at the temple, and they're trying to make sense of this and the idea that their society is collapsing and their temple is going to be destroyed and their capital city is going to be sacked and burned. And they're wrestling with this. And verse 3, they come to Jesus, they say, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So what's interesting here is that uh, they're, they're associating these things, the destruction of the temple, which is all Jesus mentioned, and his second coming at the end of the world. And they're linking these two things together as, as really is the problem in the church today because we immediately think that we're the center of it all, right? I know that's the Southfield City motto. I'm not attacking that. But we think we're the center of the universe, right? So if our society is collapsing and things are going badly in our culture, in our Western civilization, or for Peter, if the temple's going to be destroyed, well, that must be the end time. That must be the end of the world. What's the... What's the timing of these things and of your second coming at the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. So so Jesus is saying, don't be deceived, don't be fooled by this idea that the end of Jerusalem as we know it in the first century is going to be the end of the world. He, He says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. Now, the, the paragraph heading, as is consistent, I'm not picking on our pew Bible, but it says the signs of the times and the end of the age. And, and people say, well, these are the signs that Jesus is about to return. Uh, there are false teachers saying, I am the Christ. They're deceiving many. Wars and rumors of wars. Don't be troubled. Uh, but Jesus says, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. It's unbelievable how people could take this and say, this is the sign that it's the end. Jesus is saying, it's not the sign it's the end. This is going to be happening again and again. These are cyclical patterns of church history. He's saying, the end is not yet. Don't be deceived to think that the end is yet. It's not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. You know, there's a pandemic. It's, the, you know, the raptures around the court. L- listen, Jesus is saying these things are going to happen, friends. These things are going to happen again and again. Earthquakes in various places. You know, the, the goal here is not to do a word study on the word various to see if maybe we can find which earthquake. My friends, he's saying this is a pattern. This is a cyclical pattern in all, all over the place, throughout all of history. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. So in terms of New Testament history, the things that Peter thinks is going to be the sign of the second coming, Jesus is saying, uh, assuming it's Peter here, I'm picking on Peter, but it's the disciples in general, but the things they think this must be the sign of the end of the world, Jesus says it's just getting warmed up. This is just the beginning. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. In terms of New Testament history, and we know this is the case, right? It's been 2,000 years since these things were happening in the first century. 
And we've seen all these things come to pass in, in cycles of history. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. And, and, and these sorrowful cycles and events, they've been happening time and time again. It wasn't a sign that Jesus was going to come back after that happened. It was a sign that it's just the beginning. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now that's uh, interesting there, isn't it? Hated by all nations. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the first century, and he's saying the church will have expanded so vastly throughout the entire world to the ends of the earth to such an extent that there will be Christians to hate in all nations. See, you have to be a glass full expositor of some of these passages. We look at that and we say, oh, that's really negative, hated by all nations. But if, if you're Jesus with 12 disciples in the first century in Jerusalem, and you're saying there's going to come a point where my followers will be hated, will even be known among all nations of the world, and they'll be hated for my name's sake, which means the name of Christ will be proclaimed throughout all the nations under heaven. So even to get to the point where God's people are hated by all nations is a huge win for the advance of the gospel. This is the kind of statement, if you put it in its context, someone who was an unbeliever or a skeptic at the time would have said, Jesus, you're crazy that you think that you're your kingdom is even going to expand that far. Uh, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. You see the cycle continues. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And we say, yes, but what's a sign of the end? What's a sign that the end is just around the corner. Well, he gives it in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Notice Jesus uses that same phraseology. He speaks of the world and he's referring to the nations. And then the end will come. So famines, pestilences, apostasy, these are not signs necessarily that we're nearing the second coming. The advance of the gospel to all nations, Jesus says, will occur, and then the end will come. Now, of course it's true that the Bible says that after this massive global expansion of the gospel to all nations of the world, where uh, all nations join together in a corporate profession of true religion, prior to Christ's second coming, and there's a vast period of peace and righteousness that we sang about in Psalm 72. All of that's true. But yes, at the end, Revelation 20 tells us that at the end, Satan will be loosed after he had been prohibited and prevented from deceiving the nations. He'll be let loose for a brief time just prior to the second coming, and that will be like the days of Noah and there will be great apostasy and falling away just prior to the second coming. All nations will abandon the faith and turn against Christ and he'll return in judgment with fire from heaven. So there's no question that at the very end, there is a final apostasy for a brief time 
after the period when Satan is bound, Satan will be let loose. But there is a period in which Satan is bound in which the full extent of the gospel is massive and global in its influence and all nations join together in a corporate profession of true religion. I mean, what are they actually apostatizing from at the end when Satan's loosed? What are, they, what are they falling away from if the nations never came to profess the truth and submit to Christ in the first place? See, it, wouldn't even, it doesn't even make sense except that Satan had been prevented from deceiving them for a large and significant period of time. So understand, you can look at passages as they're explained by so many preachers today and they highlight all the negatives, but, but if you read what Jesus is saying here, It's actually saying that we shouldn't expect that Jesus is going to come until there's a a far greater outpouring of the Spirit, a far greater advance of the kingdom, which is yet to come. So all nations will join together in a corporate profession of true religion prior to Christ's second coming. Now, by nations, we're referring to those with a common language and in some sense a common government. Uh, It's difficult to pin down the exact meaning of the word nation in in different contexts, but the Bible speaks of tribes and tongues or languages, peoples and nations. Uh, The promise that Abraham would see uh, in his seed all families of the earth would be blessed is elsewhere quoted in the scripture and the word nations is used. So families and nations are closely connected. We think of ethnicities. Uh, We think of nations with a common government, common language, societies with a common culture. In some sense, these things are merged together. It's difficult to say exactly uh, when Jesus says that uh, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world and all nations, among all nations. Or when he says, disciple all nations and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Or when it says all nations will be blessed in him. It's unclear, but really it's mainly speaking of ethnicities and nation states. That's the way the word is most commonly used. Uh, So all ethnicities and nation states will join together in professing the true religion. And when we say all, uh, we mean all. Now again, there can be, you know, you go to India and there's all these different ethnicities and 50 different languages. Okay, there's within reason, okay? But taken in, in, in the general terms here that, that are just difficult to evade the clear meaning, we're dealing with something that is all-inclusive. Every nation, every, broadly speaking, every ethnicity and nation state. And this is language straight from the Word of God. Psalm seventy-two, eleven: Yes, all kings shall bow down before Him. All nations shall serve Him. Okay? And read Psalm 72. There are needy people. There is injustice. Uh, the sun and moon continue. This is not the new heavens and the new earth. And so much more can and hopefully will be said on that point. But uh, it's saying that all nations and all kings will serve Him. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 2. The point here is we should not shy away from biblical language. Isaiah 2, verse 2. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, that's the New Testament period, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. This is the latter 
days, the last days, the New Testament period from beginning to end. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, what's that a reference to? That's a reference to the church, God's kingdom, holy Mount Zion. The mountain of the Lord's house, His church, shall be established on the top of the mountains. So mountains in Old Testament prophetic literature are the kingdoms. So you've got these mountains and the church will be established above all other kingdoms of the earth and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. All nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. All nations will flow into the church. It's just simply what the Bible says. It's, it's not, there's very little interpretation here. Um, now, it's not saying every single person. In fact, the scripture tells us it's not every single city that will profess the faith when the gospel gains this global dominion. Isaiah 19, verse 18. Uh, and again, we'll look at Isaiah in greater detail, but here's an example where God promises that Egypt and Assyria and Israel will all be blessed nationally. They will take oaths and covenant to be the Lord's people. Uh, verse 25, blessed is Egypt my people and Assyria the work of my hands and Israel my inheritance. Uh, that hasn't happened yet for sure. Uh, but notice verse 18 when it describes this great advance of the gospel. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. So five out of six. So we're not dealing with every single person. We're not dealing even with every single city. But five out of six is pretty significant. Uh, only one out of six will be a city of destruction. The other five will be covenanted to the Lord. Uh, this is a corporate profession. It's, we might say, a national covenant. You can see on the pulpit, for Christ's crown and covenant. That's because our forefathers, at the time of the Scottish Second Reformation and beyond, believed strongly that their nation ought to make a covenant with God through Christ to be faithful to the Word of God, to submit to the will of King Jesus, to respect the crown rights of Christ over the church, and not to interfere with the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government of the church, but also to submit to Christ in every aspect of life and society. People swore this covenant. Uh, the, 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 the leaders, the religious leaders, the political leaders, regionally, nationally, locally, the citizens, some of them signed in their own blood, and many shed their blood afterward when the leaders renounced it and persecuted those who held fast to the covenants. But this is a national covenant that we're speaking of here. A corporate profession by all nations. And Jeremiah describes the basic concept here. Jeremiah 50 verses 4 and 5. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and the children of Judah together, 
with continual weeping they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, Come, reminds you of the Gentile nations in in Isaiah chapter 2, doesn't it? Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. Kiss the Son. This is national covenanting. Kiss the Son. Profess allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Listen to Isaiah chapter 60 in threatening judgment on those nations that refuse to do so. Isaiah 60 verse 10. Verse 12. Well, let's start verse 10. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. So so the nations are flooding into the church. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. And this is why in our... Testimony, in the RP Testimony, chapter 23, section 4. Listen to what we say here as a denomination. Every nation ought to recognize the divine institution of civil government, the sovereignty of God exercised by Jesus Christ, and its duty to rule the civil affairs of men in accordance with the will of God. It should enter into covenant with Christ and serve to advance His kingdom on earth. The negligence of civil government in any of these particulars is sinful, makes the nation liable to the wrath of God, and threatens the continued existence of the government and nation. And it goes on, you can read the RP testimony, um, certainly uh, quite a bit to say in that chapter, but we all have a duty to pray for this, to labor for this, the recognition of Christ. Uh, among the nations, among our own nation. Uh, Larger Catechism 191. What does it mean when we pray, Thy kingdom come? What are we praying for in the words of our doctrinal standards? One of the things, picking up midway through Larger Catechism 191, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world. The Jews called... That's effectually called a massive conversion. They cite Romans 11. The Jews call the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. That's the confessional interpretation and application of Romans 11. We're praying for this. We're expecting this. The church furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrates. Not interfered with, but supported and and, uh, encouraged by the civil government. Uh, It's a corporate profession. Not every person being saved, but every nation has to adopt a perspective on who God is, what's right and wrong, and where does authority stem from. And this is telling us that all nations will acknowledge Christ's authority and will submit to Him and profess the truth. Now, when we say true religion, uh, we can't stray too far from Romans 4. Clearly, we're dealing with true religion grounded in the true gospel. The righteousness of faith is what distinguishes those who are blessed in Abraham as his offspring from everybody else. 
So it's the true gospel which has been proclaimed by the church of the Reformation, that gospel of righteousness by faith that is the light in which the nations will walk in Isaiah chapter 2. And it'll happen prior to Christ's return. We'll close with this point. Uh, We don't have time to get into all the various uh, objections to, to this doctrine. Lord willing, we'll have time for that at another point. But if you look carefully, and hopefully we will, at a number of these passages, there's no way to read these promises as happening after Christ returns. Just a couple examples, Psalm 22, verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. So, The word turn there in verse 27 is the word for conversion or repentance. People will not be repenting and converting after the second coming. Uh, I've already mentioned Psalm 72, which is just incompatible with the the state of affairs after Christ's return. Um, But I'll conclude with this, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. Uh, The apostle is defending the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead, that we will be raised with Christ at his second coming. Uh, He he makes reference, verse 23, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Now, verse 24, listen carefully. Then comes the end. If you have the King James Version, it's going to say something like this. Then comes the end when he shall have delivered Uh, Sorry, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he shall have put an end to all rule and all authority and power. And that's the best way to understand this. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he shall have already put an end to all rule and all authority and power. So what it's saying is Christ offers up his kingdom He's the greater Solomon, right? He's building his church. He's not going to return in glory halfway through the building project. He's building it throughout all the nations. And then at the end, he returns and offers up his kingdom to the Father, having completed that work throughout history of building his church. He offers it up to the Father. And at that point, it's the culmination of what he's already done when he shall have already put an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That's talking about the history of God's church throughout the New Testament, even in our own day. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's the death blow to the idea that all of these massive, amazing blessings among the nations are going to happen after the resurrection. Because it's saying that the defeat of death at the resurrection will be the defeat of the last enemy. So Christ providentially through the gospel will have defeated all nations historically, gradually, through the Great Commission. He will have put down all opposing rule and authority and power. It'll all be under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It means all the other enemies have been defeated. 
and now death at the, uh, is destroyed at the resurrection as the final enemy. So that's the timeline that the Bible gives to us. All nations will join together in a corporate profession of true religion prior to Christ's return. And God, God willing, will come back to this next time considering the book of Genesis and how it begins to unfold this teaching in the Bible. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that you would strengthen our weak knees and our feeble hands, that you would instill in us a zeal for your house and for your kingdom, to know that the Lord Jesus Christ, whose voice is not so boisterous as to be heard in the streets and who breaks not the bruised reed nor quenches the smoking flax, yet to know that by His word of power through the gospel that He shall not be discouraged nor frustrated, but shall bring to completion the advance of His kingdom and even the islands shall wait for His law and He shall rule from the river to the ends of the earth. We pray that You would reinforce a biblical perspective on our outlook on the world, that we would see it as You've revealed it, and that we would walk in the victory of Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.